Hello, everyone. Welcome to ABC Gotham, your New York City amateur history podcast. I am your host, Kathleen, joined with, as last time, with my friend Jaquetta. Hello, Jaquetta. Hello, how are you? Good to have you back. Thank you for doing another episode with us. I am so excited to be back. I love doing someone else's podcast. <laughs> so glad to hear it. This one, of course, is a particularly... I don't want to say brutal, because that happened already, but nightmarish <laughs> topic for only the bravest of all of our listeners who are back. Thank you, listeners, for coming back to part two of Ugliest Buildings, where we attack the modern monstrosities that we all have to walk past every single day. And just like with the brutalist buildings that we discussed last time, oh, shit, it is just one thing after another. It was very hard to narrow it down. Yeah. This was especially because these are the buildings that I think stick out to me the most. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Absolutely. These modern glassy behemoths. Ugh. Or worse, the rusty one, but I'll get to that yeah. at the end. Saving that one for last. I understand that architects got to jazz it up sometimes and they can't do crenellation and columns on every building. I get it. I get it. But oh my lord. There's some nice modern in the city. There's a Scandinavian building on Park Avenue. I will include a picture because it is very streamlined and pretty and totally of the scale of all of the townhouses next to it. There's some good modern in the city. Can you think of anything? Um, good modern buildings in the city. Only really small things. Like mm. where someone has, you know, tried to, to work with a space and yes. marry it with what's going on around it. But I can't think of anything iconic Mm -hmm. that I like. Most of the iconic stuff, the Frank Gehry type situations, I'm not okay with. And they stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's absolutely or a middle it. finger. Yeah, you know what? We got a lot of that too, which you'll be hearing about those in a moment. All right. We will begin, and I will tell you about my second ugliest building in the city, in my personal opinion, and that is the new Cooper Union building, which is at 41 Cooper Square. Like with all the buildings, there are images in the album on Facebook. Once again, once seen, they can never be unseen, so proceed with <laughs> caution. This one's bad, especially if you like cross the street and you get a look at the whole thing top to bottom. Oh my lord. So here's what it looks like if you haven't seen it yet. It looks like if someone dropped a gelatinous speckled gray cube from a great height and the cube suffered damage when it landed, but it didn't break all the way through. And then it was hastily propped up on one story high haystack of toothpicks. Nailed it. There are jagged rifts. The top is slightly transparent for some reason. And the only way this building could possibly look worse is when people who are in it open the windows. So I don't know what they were thinking I'm just looking at pictures of this from angles that I would never be able to to see because, you know. When you walk wow. up down the street, you just see the, the toothpicks. But when you step yeah. back, it's like, oh, my God. And I'm usually only down at that part of town at night. Ah. This, it, this looks like Godzilla had a piece of this. <laughs> he does. On the side there. It looks like he just was like, F this, and just with a claw. Right. Just, just sort of came ripped it, it open. Yeah, but not enough. Not enough to smash it. Exactly. He didn't, he didn't have the follow-through. Yeah. So, yes, when I look at this building, the question that occurs to me, as it occurs to many, is what were they thinking? Now, that's the question that occurs to me with all of these buildings, but this one in particular is just... Ah. So, this is what I focused all of my research on. Clearly, okay. smart people built this. You, you yeah. know, they're... It's hard to be an architect. It's hard to go to architecture school. You got to be on mm -hmm. top of your stuff. So they must have known what they were doing. Well, here's what I learned. Okay. Lay it on me. It was designed from the inside out. It was designed to have a really nice central atrium. They call it the central piazza. I stepped inside the building a couple of months ago to see what this magnificent interior looked like. And I am ambivalent to report that it is almost as discordant and upsetting as the exterior really yeah that's so disappointing it's, it's as as struck with horror as you were to see the outside go inside it is just as bad 
So this large vertical gash in the exterior, they call it the vertical cutaway, that is intended mm-hmm. to reveal the piazza to the public who are looking across the street. Okay. Or at their phones or at a shitting dog or at anything, <laughs> dear God, anything yes. but 41 yes, anything. Cooper Square. Shit, my God, anything. Wow. The quote from the designer. Here it is. Quote, the exterior facade is made of a stainless steel curtain wall that wraps the entire building. This custom facade is densely perforated, except in certain rectangular areas, so that the visual effect is a series of rectangle shapes scattered across the surface of the facade. It is made up of operable panels that can open and close depending on the environmental conditions. At the building entrance, the metal curtain is slightly lifted to draw people into the lobby. Really? That's what he says. <laughs> okay. Well, let's hear what the architecture critics say. Okay. Nikolai Orusov, architectural critic of the New York Times, praised the building as being an, quote, example of how to create powerful architecture that is not afraid to engage its urban surroundings. And, quote, a bold architectural statement of genuine civic value. My opinion of Nikolai Osirov dropped dramatically when I read that. Wow, I don't know him, but I don't like his style. No, I don't want to see buildings he dislikes. I can't imagine how bad those would be. (laughs) Exactly. 41 Cooper Square appears in the 2013 U.S. television series The Tomorrow People as headquarters of the Ultra Agency. It also appears in the third season of the TV series Person of Interest. That is headquarters for the fictitious company Life Trace. Okay. So here's a rumor. I haven't been able to really verify it, but some say that this building is the reason that Cooper Union was recently forced to charge tuition. I heard that as well. Yeah. And they'd been tuition free for over a century. That was kind of their thing is is you come here and you learn. No tuition. Yeah. This is a multi-million dollar building. It more than doubled the university's budget deficit. According to Tom Sinat, he's an adjunct professor at Cooper Union. He is former chief economist emeritus of the U.S. Trust. So the project's final price tag, according to the Wall Street Journal, is $111.6 million. Ew. Yeah. And critics, including a group called Friends of Cooper Union, say that the decision to design such an expensive building jeopardized the university's tradition of free education for all, which is the whole point of Cooper Union. Yes. So the way they put it is, once a shimmering architectural declaration of outsized ambition, now 41 Cooper stands darkened by both an ignominious history and a dirtying mesh facade which is just one of many issues that plague the building. This always intrigues me when these super high-tech buildings, there's a Frank Gehry building that's having problems with the windows, the new museum building is dirty. I don't understand how they can overlook these things. Are they so excited about the material? Are you going to answer my question? I think that's it. And I mean, I'd want to be fair, and every building needs has wear and tear and needs maintenance and everything, but... You know, if it's brand new, it's a little early to be hearing about uh, what students have told us about the problems they are encountering. Broken elevators, windows that don't open properly, peeling walls. Peeling walls, (laughs) Jaquetta. They can't keep the paint on the goddamn walls. That's basic. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. (laughs) It's a layer of primer. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Even I know that. The New York Sun critic, architecture critic, Francis Maroney, says... The Morphosis Building, I guess it's called the Morphosis Building, sure, why not? Mm -hmm. The Morphosis Building has, to my incredulity, been described as playful, though it's one of the most violent building designs I've ever seen. The giant gash out of its glassy front evokes a bomb blast. Exactly, or as I said, you know, either Hulk smash or... I like your Godzilla. I like the Godzilla and like just a claw ripping down. Yeah. Not all the way to the bottom, but ripping down. It's like he was walking by and just used it as a kind of a, you know, to thrust himself forward. (laughs) One claw. (laughs) I 
I really don't understand. I don't know any architects, mm-hmm. but I would like to talk to some and see what's going on in the mindset of these people when they're building these things. They know exactly. nobody likes this stuff. Come exactly. on. Exactly. And there are cool, sleek, interesting, different ways to do this. You don't have to yeah. be aggressively hateful. Yes. That's what I see when I see 41 Cooper Union. Listeners, just like last time, I would love to hear your input. Agree, disagree. Uh, If you don't feel either way about it, this is interesting to us. Let us know on the Facebook page. Tuqueta, what do you got? I have here an equally offensive building. Really? In terms of the garishness of it. This is the... Let me get the name correct here. Is the... Weston Times Square. Oh, yes. If you have been in Times Square, you will know that Times Square is garish enough as it is. And this building has made things worse. (laughs) If if you didn't think it was possible, (laughs) it is. Yes. It was completed in 2002. And the company, and I'm I'm hoping I pronounce this correctly, Mm -hmm. is the architectural firm is Architectonica. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a husband and wife team. They are both professors at the School of Urban Design in Harvard. I don't know what they're teaching there. (laughs) Basically, what we have here on the bottom of the building are a mess of advertisements, as is typical of Times Square. So you've got Chevy's, uh, I Love New York, Mm -hmm. uh, different, you know, advertisements for different things. Then on top of that, you have what looks like a a cube that someone Mm. has crushed and then pulled back apart yes. and it's in various <laughs> different colors. And then on top of that, you have a tower that kind of swooshes a little bit to oh. the, to the right depending on which direction you're looking at. And then there's a, a shot of light that goes through it. And then there's actually a beam of light that shoots out of the top of it, which oh, I've for- only seen in the pictures. The yeah. style of this building is called Mayamero. And it is a term that is used to refer disparagingly to buildings in the city of Miami. So oh. this building was supposed to bring a Latin feel to New York City. But huh. there's a big difference between a Latin feel and a Miami feel. Okay. <laughs> okay. A yeah. Latin feel can be a lot of beautiful things. Yeah. For most of us in the Northeast, as the critics contended with this, the, the Miamification of this building is offensive. That's, um, I would be offended if I were from Miami to look at this yes. and think that people thought it had to do with my hometown. Well, I looked at some of the work that these architects have done in mm-hmm. Miami and it's, it's equally as bad. They came okay. to fame when one of their buildings was featured in the opening of Miami Vice. So that tells you the style okay. that they're going for. Yep. Critics say that the Weston is too Latin. It's Almodovar, a building on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Yeah, um, yeah, it looks like it's, that. Yeah, it's, he also said it was a, they defined it as a Broadway samba. Mm. Um, so a lot of negative things about this building, but the people who built it said it's a celebration. They said that they wanted to reference the, the fun and the commercial look of Times Square. But what most New Yorkers see is that it was already bad and they frankly made it worse. Yes. The hotel originally was supposed to be catering to an upscale corporate clientele, but it's actually one of the more affordable uh, hotels in the area. It has 863 rooms. 126 of them are suites. So what's interesting about the building, the way that it was put together technically is fascinating. Mm. Each of the panels on the outside was virtually like handmade. Oh. It was glazed in one place, pieced together in another. Each one had like a a barcode on it to let the artisans who were putting together know where each piece would go. Mm-hmm. I think it has something like 8,000 pieces to it. So this is the glass pieces on the tower part? These are the glass pieces that do the curtain wall that surrounds the building. Yeah. You know, if the building were just that glass tower part, that's kind of cool and interesting and and funky. Yeah. But But it's that crushed cube underneath. Yeah. And then there's the 40-story, the curved white line that Mm -hmm. shoots through it Mm -hmm. that has the light coming up up for it. Ridiculous. So they, in order to make the base... 
There are 10 different colors that they picked. Mm. And here it is. And they produced 8,000 glass sheets in those colors. Oh, wow. And then clear glass panels as well to go over the, the curtain wall. They made the design together, and then they they used, like, a special aluminum alloy. So it's like a lot of technical processes went into this. Yeah. They got a, a painting specialist from the Netherlands to come up with a kind of adorable coating of silver or copper color. Um, you know, pieces came from all over the world. So one good thing about this building is it's never going to look any different than it does right now. <laughs> However, it, right now it looks awful. Yeah, that's also the one bad thing about this building. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really, really bad. They thought that it was going to usher in a new era of more Latin architecture in yeah. Times Square. Yeah. I'm not sure how they thought that was going to happen. Generally, New York is, architecture is quite sober. Yeah. And resistant to change. This building it just really stands out because of the amount of colors that are on it. Right. And, and how incongruous it is with the surrounding area. Because Times Square is garish, mm -hmm. but it is not colorful. Yeah. Yeah. It's not colorful. A lot of gray. A lot of lights going on, a lot of things happening. Mm -hmm. But as I'm looking at more and more images of it, this building doesn't fit in at all. And oddly enough, if you look at it from the street, it looks flat. Yeah. Despite all the attempts that they have made to try to make it look as exciting as possible, it reads as extremely flat. Mm hmm. I mean, when you're down there, you're just trying to get through the area and get the hell out. You're going to, mm -hmm. you want to get on the subway or get through Times Square or get to Port Authority. You don't want to hang around and look no. and try to learn about this no freakish it, build it almost i think that by accident they've made the it's kind of like a billboard you know it looks like just a yeah. really flat surface that something could be projected onto it's very yeah. confusing from what i understand the hotel is okay it's not fantastic yeah but there it is it's carnival-esque they say maya marrow latin style uh, some uh, people say that it's erotic. Other people say it's against nature. Yeah, that sounds so. good to me. I'm going to go with against nature because... Yeah, a lot of choices there. It's kind of offensive. It is. Like, yeah. again, if I were from Miami and I learned that this is a, sort of based on Miami, I would be very unhappy. Yeah, it says... Some of, one of the critics said, uh, Russell Lyon said, we are snobbishly intolerant in New York of the subculture of Florida. And we wish we, they would keep everything but their pompano and oranges down there where it belongs <laughs> and not foul our nest with their taste. Ours is bad enough already. It, we need no help from the provinces. So this is someone talking about <laughs> this is someone talking about something that was built a while ago, just slightly in the style yeah. of, of Miami. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Not a style that we want here in New York. But if you are interested... And this jazzy, colorful, and irregular building, you can go inside of it very easily. From what I understand, the lobby is quite nice. Okay. If you can make it past the exterior. <laughs> I hate this building. I see it all the time, and whenever I see it, it just makes me angry. I, I hate it. I hate that somebody drew this and decided, yes, finished. Mm -hmm. That's what it should look like. And I hate that these people are teaching urban design at Harvard. Oh, my Lord. Oh, yeah. my Lord. One of our best universities. <laughs> well, if you're not already thoroughly nauseated by modern architecture, this one's going to hit you right in the gut. And I am going to tell everyone about the new Whitney Museum of American Art. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing. I like modern art. I could go to a modern art museum and just sit and puzzle things out. Yeah. That's, that's a fun time to me. So this is a museum for modern and contemporary art. It is in the Meatpacking District. It is at 99 Gansport Street. So it's between the High Line and the Hudson River. Now, at the street level, this actually looks kind of nice. The entryway is open and airy, and the light flows through it. But it's when you step back or when you cross the street to get a good view, or if you are a courageous ABC Gotham listener, you check out the photos on the Facebook page and see the entire building... Especially if you see the west facade, and that's what our pictures are going to be bad. about. Yeah, you see something is horribly wrong with this <laughs> building. It went way off track at some point. It is disjointed. It is erratic. The building looks like it's covered in cheap aluminum siding or paneling, so it looks like RVs and trailer homes 
on the sides. Mm-hmm. From the distance, the eastern facade of the building appears to have raw I-beams jutting out of it. There are exterior staircases, which Jaquetta and I have already established we are not big fans of in the Brutalist episode. Mm-mm. And these are creepy if you walk on them. They're scary. And the western facade, of course, is the worst of all. So, obviously, I have some emotions about this. So, before I get into how it looks, I do want to say that there are a lot of challenges in designing an art museum. The interior space has to accommodate a wide variety of works. And especially in contemporary art, there are some very, very large-scale works, like walkthrough sized immersive installations and those works can be really interesting and the space has to be able to draw crowds and writers photographers press you need open spaces you really can't have like pillars in the middle you have to try to work around that they have to think about how the light is going to come in they also have to shield art from the sun that might damage the works so there's a lot of issues to deal with Depending on the materials used in the works, the people in charge at the museum might have to worry about off-gassing. So, like, ventilation systems are critical. They've really got to be top of the line. And, of course, a huge room that is wide open is extremely difficult to control the temperature in there. They have to worry about that, too. All right, now I'm going to tell you how ugly it is. The West Facade. Visually, it is split in half vertically by a long concrete rectangle that has windows on the top. Sure, why not? On the right half, (laughs) there is a large rhombus. It is stacked on a flat rectangle. It is on top of a smaller square, and that is on top of an open glass-walled lobby. It is awkward. It looks unstable. When my brother was a toddler, he would play with cans. And you know the tiny can of tomato paste? Yeah. And the big can of pineapple rings. (laughs) (laughs) He liked to put the pineapple rings on top of the tomato paste. And this reminds me of that. I never thought about it that way, but that is 100% right on. That's it. You look at it and you're like, ah, no, no, no. On the left side, there are two rectangles. They're stacked vertically like three trailer homes on their ends. (laughs) The top one is offset just enough to induce nausea in the viewer. They're angled slightly differently, and your vertigo is enhanced by oblong windows and striations for the aforementioned stacked trailer park look. The bottom left rectangle's lower half has all of the ventilation and the loading dock door right there in front. Why the hell not? Yeah, why not? Put it out on front street. Put it on front. Pretend it's on purpose. So, a lot of architects have a lot of opinions about this, and one gentleman, Nicholas Corody at Arcanet.com, he did a great job compiling various reviews of the new Whitney. There is a link below. You can see what he says, but here is a brief summation. Michael Kimmelman, architecture critic of the New York Times, considers the building from each perspective. From the West, he says it looks ungainly and a little odd vaguely nautical okay mm-hmm. from the north where it resembles something else a factory or maybe a hospital neither of the things you want your museum to look like he says the new museum isn't a masterpiece but it is a deft serious achievement okay all right paul goldberger for vanity fair says the exterior quote seems like an awkward hybrid part glass box, part big metal beast. He agrees with a lot of people that the building is great up close, one-on-one, and he says all the new building's faults are on the outside, and you forget them once you get past the front door, when an exuberant, upbeat spirit takes over. And in fairness, I have not been inside of this museum. Oh, really? We have to go. Yes. Uh, We go all the time. Oh, for Um, I'm a member, and I have to say that when they, I was a member before they moved, and when they unveiled the new place, I was angry. Yeah, I bet a lot of people were angry. Until I got inside, and the interior of this museum is so remarkable that I think it is the best museum I've ever been in. So I don't know why they couldn't do something more with the outside to camouflage it. Yeah. But the interiors are amazing, and I... Don't even look at the outside now. I just get right inside. I'm not kidding. I just rush right inside. 
So when when you say to camouflage it, does that mean that how it looks on the outside, that's all there on purpose? Like that is part of how it was designed? That is the, what you see on the outside is is like the, how it was built, kind of. Oh. So when we were talking about brutalist structures in the last episode, you, you just kind of don't really, you know, you can have a square and then inside you have an amazing, you can have an amazing interior or an interesting interior. Mm-hmm, With mm-hmm. this, you have an amazing interior, but why didn't they just make it square or something on the outside or put some kind of a curtain wall or yeah. make it look l- less uh, obvious how it was put together? I yeah. think they must have done it like this on purpose. Maybe it's kind of like you know, putting it out on Front Street, letting everyone know how this was constructed. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, that's the no only possible. No reason for it to look this fugly, frankly. I got a couple other architects here because they're great. Justin Davidson for Vulture says the exterior is a complicated contraption, ungainly on all sides. Yeah, Justin. Mm-hmm. Peter Shedal for New Yorker describes it as a lurching aggregate of shapes in striated <laughs> steel cladding and glass. With outdoor stairways that connect terraces on three floors and, quote, so confusing, pretty soon, I gave up looking at it. Don't look at it. Go inside. Get inside. Do the visual equivalent of hold your nose and run past it. Exactly. Just run through. Orham Ayuche on Archonnect wrote, The Whitney appears to be a mishmash and the resultant of various ideas and gallery spaces as if they were designed by a different curator or artist in mind. And my last... Architect Miles Jaffe on Archonnect wrote, The view from 10th Avenue Gansevoort Street, so the west facade, looks like an accident. With an (laughs) ill-proportioned series of indiscriminate shapes related only through a drab material palette, reviews lead with this shot, which is clearly the most unappealing view. Wow. Some commentators say it's beautiful in the way that a beautifully engineered piece of industrial machinery is beautiful, but it is not, quote-unquote, beautiful in a traditional sense. Proportions are odd, exteriors disjunctive. In some ways, as a work of architecture, it is more closely aligned with the concept of the grotesque than to beauty. And the best review of all, and after this I'm done talking about the Whitney, Theodore (laughs) Dalrymple says the building is a perfect place from which to commit suicide. Wow. Yeah. He's not an architect, but he's a hell of a writer. I have a link (laughs) to his writing right there. Definitely take a look. Wow. I like his style. I think, yeah, he summed it up. I I just go with get inside immediately. Approach it from underneath the high line. Yes. Just get inside. Don't look, don't look. And I think, I feel like on the ground level, it's just that glassy atrium opening area. It's probably easy enough to ignore the exterior. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, I haven't, the views that when I was looking online to prepare for this, mm-hmm. that was really the first time I had looked at the building since it first opened up. Because uh, why? I'm sorry <laughs> I brought it back to you. <laughs> yes, I'm reliving it. All right, what do you got? So I have a building that I detest, Mm. and I feel like a lot of people may enjoy this building. I simply do not. It's the United Nations headquarters. Ah. The headquarters at 760 UN Plaza. Mm -hmm. And the address is important because this uh, is actually not the United States. It is international territory. Oh, that's right. At some point, there's there's a line where you step off U.S. soil. Yes, and you you step into international soil. International soil, right. <laughs> into international soil. It's like being in the ocean, basically. Exactly, yeah. It's a maritime law applies. Exactly. So, two years after the UN was founded, so that was in 1946, they decided that they needed a location. And so they were looking all over the place. They thought about putting it in Niagara Falls originally. Mm-hmm. And then they thought about putting it on the site of the 1939 World Fair in Flushing. Yes. Meadow Park in Queens. I think it was temporarily located there. But it didn't happen. And then at the last minute, John D. Rockefeller bought the 18-acre plot and then donated it to the U.N. 
A lot of people at the time did not want the UN to be in the United States. Mm-hmm. And they definitely did not want to be in New York City. But it just so happened that at that time, New York City was a hub for travel. Mm-hmm. And they thought this will be a place that everyone from all over the world could get to very, very easily. Exactly. I'm surprised that they didn't pick London. That, to me, seems like an even easier place for everyone to get to. Yeah. But just me. It's all about um, us, Jaquetta. Just us. Yeah, it's all us. So they wanted to, to build a building that would not reference the, the tragedies of the past, right? Mm-hmm. World War I, World War II. Mm-hmm. They wanted something that would look, fo- look forward. So they decided to commission Wallace K. Harrison to put together an international design team to come up with the idea for, for what was going to be on UN Plaza. Mm-hmm. Now, this seems like a nightmare right away. They invited people from, they said they invited architects from the founding countries, yeah. but they only really in the end worked with a couple of people from Europe, <laughs> as far as I know. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So already, you know, there are 51 nations, you know, founding the UN, but mm-hmm. and then they, you know, they only got a couple of architects. And then the end, the, the architects got together. They had over 50 different designs that they looked at. But it came down to the project of Oscar Niermeyer and then Le Corbusier. Okay. And they kind of went back and forth. There was a lot of angling. And the result is what we see today, which is the very large building that you can see on the east side. That is the monolith. And that is the uh, UN Secretariat. Mm -hmm. That is the incredibly tall building. It has kind of like a... It's 39 stories. It's built in what's called international style, okay. which is the style that developed after the war and is best known in North America as corporate style oh. because that's kind of what it morphed into here. Yeah. This is clean lines, uh, using a lot of the new materials, new ways to use steel, a lot of glass, mm-hmm. you know, soulless. But at the time, this was supposed to be forward thinking. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very... You know, it's not very frilly. It's certainly not brutalist. Thank God for that. But it's yeah. it's just a big rectangle. Yeah, they didn't want to harken back to the past or have mm-hmm. a mismatch of style. So they were like, let's just do this square. Sure. So that's the Secretariat building. And that's where all the foreign diplomats' offices are. Mm-hmm. That was by Oscar Niermeyer. The other building, which is even more offensive in my mind, <laughs> it ha- it's, it's as if someone took a rectangle and squished it down on one side yep. and then put a put a, a bottle cap on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> this building is the the general assembly building and it can hold 1800 people for a meeting in the round Hi. so you know when you see those images of the un you know everyone's together that's where they are okay 1800 people can be there in the round and in the center of that is the whoever is running the the meeting sits mm-hmm. there basically mm-hmm. so since the completion the the tall building the secretariat only took a few years to complete which i found fascinating yeah it's so huge yeah so it's green glass and vermont marble one of the reasons why i dislike it is because if you're on the other side looking at it you can be blinded this is an extremely shiny building oh I and thought of it that. kind of cuts off the view mm. For a lot of people in Manhattan. And it's also offensive because it's near Tudor City, which has, in my mind, some of the most beautiful buildings in New York City. So the style, this international style, the large building secretariat was supposed to symbolize change Mm. to uh, give a sense of newness and optimistic future of all the world's nations holding hands and singing, working together as one collective. In front of it are flags of the world mm-hmm. from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe in alphabetical order. Mm-hmm. There's also a public park there that has art from around the world. A lot of the art is supposed to symbolize peace, mm-hmm. but a lot of the art there looks very brutal. It does. It's well. not necessarily pretty. There is one I kind of like, though. and it... Is it the one that beating the swords into plowshares? Um, maybe. I feel like it's a dragon that was made out of a nuclear weapon. Ooh, right? that sounds cool. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll I'll find a picture. I'll post it. Yeah, that's definitely in the style of that building. Yeah, yeah. That's their shtick. Um, that's their thing. 
So yeah, this is basically a, a, a complex that was put together by committee. Mm. And you can see that st the styles of the two buildings are in direct opposition to each other. Yeah. And as were the architects. One wanted one thing, one wanted the other. I think the smaller building that was by Le Courbusier, mm -hmm. he wasn't supposed to get that. Hmm. But ne Nehemiah was like, well, he really likes this design, so let's let him do it. Wow. So you have a really tall, glassy, thin structure, mm -hmm. and then you have what looks like if you'd taken that structure, knocked it on its side, covered it in concrete, and stuck a bottle cap on top of it. <laughs> and pushed kind of a dent into yeah. it, yeah. Yeah. It, there are no windows on the outside. So instead of giving the idea that this is a, a body of, you know, states, persons from all over the world working together, it looks like a secret layer. Yes. Yes, it does. The, here's where the leaders are meeting mm -hmm. to decide in secret and then when they're done they go into their offices mm -hmm. and the giant tower uh it's on the east river so it takes up a lot of beautiful real estate yeah. and uh there's a lot of parking and things like that around it which make it not so attractive either this is uh. just one of those buildings that i know is iconic mm -hmm. um, but i think when people think about the u.n building they're only thinking about secretariat that's the tower yeah. Yeah. They are not thinking about that other structure that looks like, frankly, a mistake. <laughs> so that's the, the UN building. Well, we'll have pictures for our listeners to take a look at. You guys can decide. It is, uh, it is weird. Yeah, it looks like compromise. Mm -hmm. It looks like the campus that compromise built. Well, a sad thing about it was that in, there was supposed to be uh, the secretariat building and then a large plaza. Mm. And that the other end of that plaza was going to be whatever the, the other building was going to be. Mm. So it was going to be a huge open space and people could kind of gather and flow from one building to another. Mm -hmm. But instead of doing that, you they put the buildings kind of right next to each other and taking up a lot more space with it. Because a pub, an open park would have been nice. Exactly. Because then in theory, the staff are sort of able to mingle with people. But now it's yeah. just building or building. And that's yep. it. They go from building to building, and they are, in effect, siloed from the rest yeah. of the city. If you've That's... ever been over in that area, it's quite strange because a lot of the diplomats have been living in the kind of UN complex area for a long time. Mm -hmm. And you can actually see some people whose style of clothing is older mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they've just been over there living in their own weird kind of UN world. That's it. So That's it's, it. it's interesting. If you have a chance and you're in New York, definitely it's worth... Uh, you know, the time to go over there and have a look and see where, where your tax dollars are going. Everybody in the world, your tax dollars are going there. Mm -hmm. And I've heard, you know, you can get tours of the UN. I actually have been here so long. I've never done that. But I've heard I, they're really I've great heard tours. you can get a tour, but I also heard that they're very disorganized, which I find strange. Uh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Come on, guys, get it together. I feel like they're probably only in like two languages. Oh, you know? seriously? That's... Like something ridiculous like that. Ah, uh, all right. Well, I have is a building that has gotten a lot of negative attention from a lot of people. It is 432 Park Avenue. It is known by a couple of other names. We call it the Twix Bar in my house, but it also is a big middle finger to the middle class. What do you call it, Jaquetta? Yeah, I'm going to go with the big middle finger. Yeah, it's a big yeah. F you to, uh, to everyone who's ever worked for a living. Yes, yes. So for those of you who don't know which one we're talking about, this is the super tall residential skyscraper in Manhattan. It overlooks Central Park. It is a long, skinny tower. It is visible from every borough. It is visible from very far out. It is the second tallest building in New York City. But let me wow. give you the background. So this was originally proposed to be 1,300 feet high. This was in 2011, but the structure topped out at 1,396. It's actually almost 1,400 feet. So that height makes it the third tallest in the U.S. and the tallest residential building in the world. And like I said, it is the second tallest building in New York City behind One World Trade and ahead of the Empire State Building. Hmm. Can you believe it? Someone is higher than the top of Empire State. I, I think this building I'm going to talk about that's getting built is higher. Oh, goody. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me really happy. Although you know it's a race to the top now. Yeah. But, uh, 
So this was designed by architect Raphael Vignoli. Okay. Boo. Boo. Around what is described, quote, the purest geometric form, the square, unquote. However, I also learned, this is going to blow your mind. Ready? Okay. It was inspired by a trash can. Okay. Designed by Joseph Hoffman. Now, I googled trash can Joseph Hoffman, and I did not find anything that... uh, I didn't find any trash can, but listeners, if you can find it, definitely let us know. In case you didn't hate this architect already, he has a famous quote. There are only two markets, ultra-luxury and subsidized housing. Okay. So, I know which one of those I'm going to wind up in. I found the trash can. Oh, you did? Yes, I did. I'll send it to you right now. Thank you. Hooray, hooray. Um, Fashion consultant Tim Gunn has described the building as just a thin column. It needs a little cap. But other than the (laughs) visuals of it, the building has been maligned by some city residents, including this girl, who find it an eyesore and believe it represents New York's increased cost of living and ostentatious wealth. The tower's condominium units feature high ceilings and range from a 351-square-foot studio. So you can get a studio in this building, guys. 350 square feet? Yeah. What? Yeah. Not a big studio, but you can get it. The other end of that is uh, you could get a six-bedroom, seven-bath penthouse with a library. Can't get it. That sold for $95 million dollars. To some rich asshole whose name I'm not even going to say because you know that the whole reason he bought it was so that everyone would be like, oh, what's his name? Oh, he's the one who's on, who bought it. He's the one who's got the penthouse. Yeah, screw that guy. Fuck him forever. Also, yeah. another reason he might have bought it is the views. They're pretty amazing. They are jaw-dropping. They are breathtaking. And Yes, but they're ruining the, the view from everyone else. I know, but Jaquetta, they're so great. And there's a link below because they are really great views. Like you can see down to Coney Island from one window and up to Westchester from another window. I wow. mean, it's, uh, it's, it's I, nice. I don't think I could live like that, though. I think I would be too freaked out. Yeah. Yeah. The building <laughs> does blow around in the wind. I, I bet. Recently, the lighting display was revealed. Oh, I bet I bet everyone's <laughs> waiting on the edge of their seats. What's the yeah. lighting display going to be? It's going to be horizontal stripes. Hope you like Great. horizontal stripes. There are five double-height open-air mechanical floors that were designed into the building. Those will be illuminated from sundown to sunup. It is floors 2021, floors 3035, 4849, 6263, and 7677. Again, there's a link below. You can see a picture of what the lighting display looks like. From the pictures, it's sort of cool. So this is interesting. When they were building this building and deciding who should buy these units, a group called Maclo Properties is their marketing group, and they made a deliberate choice to keep 432 Park Avenue's units off of popular broker databases like StreetEasy. Instead, the firm went full throttle in its attempt to court the Russian oligarchy. Great. So nothing like dirty blood money. There you go. A sales office was set up at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel on Moscow's Tverskaya Street, where dozens of billionaires pass through the lobby each day. And, oh, this is the part that just drives me crazy. It is widely believed that the building will only be one quarter occupied at all times. Of course, because it's to uh, hide money. Yes, it's completely sold out, but it will be only one quarter occupied. And as of this writing, there are currently plans for eight more ultra-lux towers in and around Manhattan, and they are in various stages of development. And Jaguetta will tell us about another one of those horrible towers. Yes. So this building is 111 West 57th Street. Mm -hmm. It is going to be 1,438 feet tall Mm -hmm. when it's completed. So that's taller than the building you were just talking about. Uh This building, because it's on 57th Street, and those of you who may not be in New York City, it's a good idea to look at a map. Two blocks from this building is one of the most precious things that Manhattan has in its central park. Yeah. 
This building, along with several other buildings that are going to be built on 57th Street, which is now called Millionaire's Row. Oh, for God's sake. Will cast a shadow on the park. But what do they care? Assholes. Right? <laughs> yes. In any case. So this building at 111 West 57th Street mm -hmm. um, is being put together by JDS and is adjacent to a, the Steinway building, which is historic mm -hmm. uh, for the Steinway family, the pianos sure. and whatnot. And they, in order to get this building built, they had to clear it with landmarks preservation. They had to, they got both buildings together. They had to get the tenants out. <laughs> I'm not even sure how they did that. Yeah. They either bought them out, muscled them out, or they'll wait until they leave. Mm -hmm. The it's being built by Shop S H O P, and they also built the Barclay Center. Ha! Huh. We'll hear about uh, them this in a building, minute. Yeah, this building is. They're describing it as all different kinds of things, but really, it's just a really, really tall, thin tower. Mm -hmm. It's only sixty feet across, which is tiny. It's really skinny and because the the base of it is so small. They had to. It's a, it's a ratio of 1 to 23. Mm. And slender is considered a ratio of 1 to 10. Just to give you an idea. Sure, sure. So to compensate for the thinness of this tower, it's going to have an 800-ton mass damper mm. that's going to keep it stable in the face of high winds or a seismic event. If you see these tall buildings, they're actually terrifying. Yeah. They do sway in the breeze. Mm. They do creak. They're really quite scary. I know that we have, you know, architects who, you know, put all of their time and energy into making these buildings safe. This building doesn't look safe to me. Yeah. Sorry. A high wind looked like it would, you know, do some bad. That's the it. thing. I, I, it's the same way. I, like, I know that they know what they're doing. I know that these buildings rarely come down. Mm -hmm. The people who built the Titanic also knew what they were doing. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> So this tower on the facade of it has terracotta panels and a bronze lattice work mm -hmm. on the east and west facades. It's very subtle. It looks to me kind of like a snake, and I think that's evocative of the type of person that's going to be living in this building. Well said, Jaquetta. <laughs> Thank you very much. The, the, the nickname of this building is the Stairway to Heaven, and I think this was given by the developers. Yeah, that doesn't sound like something any of us would think yeah. of. They're saying that Shop's founding principal, so Shop mm -hmm. is the architectural firm, mm -hmm. Christopher Sharples, said that the small footprint harkened back to Jazz Age Towers, but they just didn't have a lot of space. Okay. There's going to be 12 condos built into the base and an ornate showroom. There's also going to be a recital hall hmm. that's going to pay homage to the Steinway Hall. And then a port cochere, which is just a carport. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fancy way of saying carport. Because you know these people drive. Yeah. Or someone drives mm -hmm. them. The tower will have a full floor and duplex apartment, all of which will have 360-degree views. Oh. And I say for now, because you know how New mm -hmm. York is. It's always a 360, yes, it's always a 360-degree view until someone else builds it. Taller than you. Yep, yep. There's going to be 54,000 square feet of commercial space on the bottom. It was originally going to be a hotel, but the space is now going to have retail on the first cellar level, the first floor, the third, and the fourth floors, and hmm. the fifth floor will have offices. Okay. Um, the price for these condos are going to start at a low $14 million Oh, that's it? And top out at $58 million. Y'all can go to hell. They say, they say that prices are justified by unobstructed views of Central Park. Um, mm. And if they don't charge this much, they're not going to be able to get their money back. Sure. So they're not sure. The project is supposed to be completed in 2018. <laughs> and they're predicting a $1.45 billion sellout. However, they are going to hold back because they're afraid that there are too many luxury developments coming onto the market. Oh, do they? So if you take a walk down 57th Street, you will see everything being torn down, raised to the ground to make these incredibly tiny mm. towers. And it's going to be like a canyon eventually mm -hmm. of really, really tall, thin buildings. And once this happens, that 360-degree um, view is probably going to be a 180 view yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah, it's going to be quite different. Yeah, It's going to be very different. 
Um, kind of interesting. So that's one of these super tall finger buildings. This one upsets me because casting a shadow on Central Park should be illegal. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that there's buildings around the edge, but they're limited in their it's height. It's not the same. Yeah. yeah. It's not the same. This is going to cast a sh- And actually, I've been learning this and I'm taking classes in urban planning. I should actually, I could probably do a mock-up of this and model the shadows for mm. myself so I could see how it's going to look. And I'm sure it's going to be, you know, it's just the idea of it. Yes. is offensive to it's me. It's not only do I get the space in the sky and in the skyline, but y'all can do without your sunshine for a while. Also, the way that these buildings are being built is that they go around and they buy air rights mm. from adjacent properties. Mm-hmm. And then they use those air rights to increase the height of these buildings. I see. I see. Um, and it's interesting because the city plays a little game where a building has, you know, X amount of air rights and they sell them. And then the next thing you know, that building has more air rights oh. and then they sell them. So, yeah. Look at that. And then, look at that. And then the final comment on these is with this building and the building you were talking about, they're really a good way for wealthy people to launder money. Yeah, it's just a thing to invest in that, frankly, is a lot more reliable than the stock market. Yeah, but you could also invest in other things that people could use. You Mm -hmm. could invest in a campus. You could invest Mm -hmm. in a public hospital. You know, you could invest in infrastructure and you could probably get your money back for it. But this is dirty money. And the best place for dirty money is usually in high-end real estate. Oh, how awful. It's pretty awful. And the buildings are awful. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm excited for this next one because (laughs) when you told me you were going to do this building, I realized that I had not seen this building ever. Since they built it, I haven't been to that part of Brooklyn. Ugh, don't, don't go. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, my personal, most hated, least favorite, worst building in my beloved city. Ladies and gentlemen, you knew it had to happen. I'm going to talk about Barclays Center. Mm. Oh, boy. As always, there are pictures in the album. Feast your eyes. Pretty bad. Here's what we're talking about. Barclays Center is at 620 Atlantic Avenue. It is a multi-purpose indoor arena in Brooklyn. It sits partially on a platform over the MTA-owned Vanderbilt Yards Rail Yard at Atlantic Avenue, and that's part of the LIRR, the Long Island Railroad. This is part of a $4.9 billion future business and residential complex known as Pacific Park. So Barclays is there, but apparently there's more to come. The arena... Oh, wow, I didn't know right? that. Yeah. The arena is home of the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, I don't watch sports. I hear they're not doing so great. I don't really know. (laughs) Barclays also hosts concerts, conventions, and other sporting and entertainment events. Barclays was bad from the start, even before it was physically vomited up from the bowels of Earth. It was initially proposed in 2004 when real estate developer Bruce Ratner purchased the Nets. Yeah, I... (laughs) If you hadn't said boo, I would put in a boo sound effect because Bruce Ratner is one of the villains here. Yeah. Purchasing the Nets was the first step of the process to build a new home for the team. They experienced significant problems because it was a shitty idea. (laughs) Which is great because the people in the area protested hard. Yes, they did. The idea involved the use of eminent domain. And the potential environmental impact of the stadium stirred up community resistance. The plan to build it included the demolition of residential buildings and small businesses, of course. But who cares? Scoot. Yeah. Because progress. Yeah, screw mom and pop. Exactly. Large amounts of public subsidies were used to make it extra offensive. This rightfully yep. led to multiple lawsuits. The global recession of 2008 also caused financing for the project to dry up. So as a result, the start of construction was delayed until 2010 because no secure funding for the project had been allotted. Groundbreaking for construction finally occurred on March 11, 2010. The arena opened to the public on September 21, 2012, and that opening was also attended by about 200 protesters. Nice. Yes. But, Jaquetta, I have not described its appearance. If you haven't looked at the pictures or if you are one of the blessed lucky people to be struck with blindness, (laughs) I will tell you what it looks like. Imagine, if you will, 
a whale had sex with a UFO. <laughs> and they left their metal baby out to rust. So if you've got that picture in your head, add some horizontal stripes, and you've got the Barclays Center. Wow. Oh, you forgot something. You forgot their big, hideous logo. Oh, and of course, uh, uh, impossible to ignore, <laughs> very bright blue. And the blue is such a nice contrast on the rust, but I'll get to that rust yeah. in a minute. <laughs> logo. Barclays Center is designed by the architecture firm Shop Architects, just like designed our last super tall ultralux condominium. Ellerby Beckett slash ACOM served as the project architect of record and initial concepts for the area were designed by Frank Gehry. Now I've liked some of Frank Gehry's buildings. I have not. None, none of them? Liked anything he's ever done. And I've seen his stuff all over the world. It either looks like crumpled up. Crumpled like paper. Trash. Yeah. Or just boring, like twisted spires yeah yeah i mean i like i i know we disagree about the west side highway uh building i yeah. kind of like it i don't hate the apartment complex near pace but i do not like barclays but it turned out gary is minimally involved okay so barclays is this long thick ribbon of rust that wraps around the stadium sorry did i say rust i beg your pardon to borrow from official documentation, quote, Externally, the arena's shape features three articulated bands, with features a glass curtain wall covered by a, quote, lattice work composed of 12,000 pre-weathered steel panes meant to evoke the image of Brooklyn's brownstone. Excuse me? It looks like Mobius rust. Mobius rust. That's perfect. Pre-weathered? Pre-weathered. What is It's like a pre-owned car. It's pre-owned. It's not used. Except at least pre-owned has been like inspected and, you know, yes. you can probably drive it. Pre-weathered steel panels means they let it rust deliberately. Wow. And they are feeding this line to us. Exactly. Some art history person put this together. Yes. Yes. And that it's meant to evoke the image of Brooklyn's brownstones. We know they're not rusted. <laughs> They're not. That doesn't make any sense at it all. It is ridiculous. It is. It looks a little bit like a T-bone. Yes. Or not a T-bone, a bone-in steak. Or <laughs> it is. It is It is incredibly offensive to me. If you're trying to evoke the image of Brooklyn's brownstones, then cover it in stone and paint it yes. brown. It is not hard. Yes. You gave us this rusty piece of shit and you tried to tell us that it's like that on purpose. Nope. Oh. Nope, nope, nope. Yeah. We're not that dumb. We're pretty dumb. But we're not that dumb. We're not that dumb. Yeah. There is a blunted curve at the end near the intersection of Atlantic and 4th Avenue, which is sort of like the the face of Barclays. And this blunted curve rises stiffly off the ground. There's a hunk of rust that remains on the ground level. This is the entrance to our major transit hub at the Atlantic Terminal. And in case it wasn't ugly enough, one sloping side is covered with straggly greenery, looking as if it's managed to get a rash of some sort. Guys, I don't recommend it, but if you decide to step within this open air space of that kind of blunted end of the ribbon, and the area is called the Oculus, because... Of course. You are greeted with an LCD screen. It's actually all along the inner surface, full of ads for your enjoyment. This is interesting. The initial design proposed a rooftop park. Of course, that would only be open to residents of the Atlantic Yards complex. It would have been ringed by an open-air running track. It would have doubled as a skating rink in the winter and would have had panoramic views of Manhattan. Several revisions scaled it back and back and back, and now we don't have a park up there. Let me guess. I guess I'm thinking that none of the other structures are going to materialize, but that they somehow told the community they uh, would. You know, that would have been pretty smart, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually what they do with these things. They're going to say, we're going to build... They probably even said they're going to build affordable houses. Oh, of course they did. And then they ran out of mm, money. Well, that'll be on hold oh, for a wow. while. Yeah. So I mentioned Frank Gehry before, and he's actually not directly involved anymore. This is an interesting revision to the design. So when Frank Gehry was still part of the project, his design included a hideous tower named Miss Brooklyn that would have risen 620 feet into the air. It was 
horrific. I have pictures of what he wanted to, to build, and Jaquetta, you would have been right. It was pretty bad. Miss Brooklyn? Miss Brooklyn. Wow. Yeah. At that height, 620 feet, she would have surpassed the height of the Williamburg Saving Bank that's nearby at one Hanson place, so that's near BAM. That bank is 512 feet. Below, please find a link to Jonathan Latham's open letter to Frank Gehry, which includes an image of this hideous bullet. We were lucky to dodge. He did not build it. Deadlines forced them to scrap Gehry's plan, including his tower, and proceed with a different design so he isn't responsible for the rusted robot whale baby. That's good news. Wow, yeah. Hmm. I'm surprised. Right. It's hideous. (laughs) So unlike most other urban venues in the U.S., Barclays Center has no dedicated parking yet. The original plan promised indoor room for bicycles, but that plan was scrapped before the arena's opening, but they did give them outdoor racks for 400 bicycles, but then they took the racks away. Oh. Yeah. The Empire State Development Corporation also promised spots for 550 cars nearby, next to the arena, eventually somewhere. Yeah, here's the thing. You you mentioned at the top of this mm. that it's it's where all of the mass transit is. Yes. Right? Yeah. So the subways are there, the railroad is there. Don't drive. Don't drive. Yeah, that's the thing. Like that's kind of the the excuse they they gave when they're like where's the parking? They said all of the transit is right here, which is yeah, true. And if you need if you're someone who needs accessibility, mm-hmm. you know, you can pull up to it. I'm sure there are ways to get there if you have mobility issues. That's the only that's, excuse I want to hear for driving. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And even and I haven't been in and I'll go into that in a second, but yeah, it's not like there's stairs leading up to the door or anything. Yeah. I would say it does seem to be very mobility accessible. So that's yeah. that is good news. So like I said, I don't have anything to say about the inside. I haven't set foot in it. The exterior in the history have already taken up too much of our time. (laughs) What I can tell you from my research, this is great. Apparently the stadium is not ideal for watching hockey. It wasn't designed to be a hockey stadium. It was designed to be a basketball stadium. And apparently there are differences. I don't know. There are a few seats that have obstructed views. Business Insider has called sections 201 to 204 and 228 to 231, quote, the worst seats in American professional sports. How is that even possible? There are so many stadiums in this country that they could have learned from. Every seat should have a view. Well, Jaquetta, what would you do if you had a stadium and a bunch of your seats were called the worst in American professional sports? Make them free. Yeah. Don't sell them. Remove the chairs. Yeah. Tell people it's an obstructed view. Yes, as they do for opera. Precisely. Or Broadway. Because they're for musical concerts. Mm-hmm. I don't care sometimes. Yeah, if I you're just there to hear the music. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, sports are different. So they interviewed the CEO of Barclays Center, a gentleman named Brett Yormack. This is in Sports Illustrated. He acknowledged the issue, but insisted nothing can be done. Quote, there's really nothing we're going to do from a capital improvement standpoint. You can watch the game on your mobile device. The game is on the Excuse- scoreboard. Well, wow, I hope someone kicked him in the throat. I right after really he said that. hope, really hope that that happened. I just don't wow. think it did. <laughs> Where was I? One last point about Barclays. It joins our friend the Verizon building, as discussed in the previous episode. These are the only two New York City structures in that Daily Telegraph album I mentioned in the last episode, the 30 ugliest buildings in the world. Once again, I provided the link down there if you want to see the other 28. Once again, don't say I didn't warn you. Ugh. Wow. Jaquetta, I am nauseated. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I feel I'm so I feel so angry right now at these architects. I know I don't know what to do with all this anger. <laughs> it's just not fair because they're putting things out there that we have to deal with these things. Exactly. Long after they're gone. And I'm not saying that I have the right to make decisions about everything that's out there, but it's hard for me to believe. I know when I put on a bad outfit that I look bad. <laughs> And I sometimes do it anyway, but I'm not going to pretend it's a good outfit. Exactly. Exactly. That's all I'm saying. And sometimes I don't mind. I'm like, all right, fine. You guys have to look at me in orange and hot pink. I don't have to look at me. 
but I would never do that for a thing like a building. No, not at all. Listeners, thank you so much for your patience and tolerance and for joining us on this journey of agony. I cannot thank you enough. Jaquetta, I can't thank you enough either. I couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. This has been amazing and informative. My pleasure. I hope I can have you back on a future episode. Not an ugly buildings episode, I promise. No, something more fun. Like, I don't know, something to do with feet. Or, you know, anything. We could do an episode yeah, on cancer. We, you know, really anything. Yeah. <laughs> anything. VD. Something yes. light. Did you do V already? We haven't. Oh, that's going to be, that's going to be a future one. Definitely. Uh, all right. Well, thank you again. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Joquetta. We're going to wrap up because I need to get drunk and not think about these buildings anymore. Talk to you all later, everyone. Bye. You could be here with me on this night in New York City. I wish you were standing here as Broadway opens up her arms. When the crimson skyline bruises black and lights up like a favorite song. I wish you could be For more ABC Gotham, go to our website, abcgotham.com. Special thanks to Podcasting's Brock. Music for ABC Gotham is by Big Rude Jake. ABC Gotham is a comeback, Zinc production. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. This night of New York City.